And this morning's reading can be found on page 932 of the Church Bible. It's from the book of Matthew, chapter 18. It's starting at verse 10. The parable of the wandering sheep. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep, and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for that one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If a brother or sister sins, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to us, so we're going to do that for Colin now. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which speaks truth to us about how to live in your world, how to be together as your people. And we thank you, Lord, for all that we have learned from the Methodist tradition down the centuries. And we pray this morning, Lord, that as you speak through Colin, so you will give him the words that you want him to say, and you will open our ears and our hearts and minds to hear you speaking to us, encouraging and challenging us to live lives that are more fully reflective of your love in your world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for that lovely prayer. And it's great to be with you today. Verse 20 of that reading said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. For where two or three are gathered, <coughs> excuse me, in my name, I am there among them. 
On the 22nd of October, 1735, two young brothers, both priests of the Church of England, embarked on a ship called the Simmons at Gravesend in Kent and were bound for the British North American colonies. And it was going to be a very exciting voyage one they would never forget for good and for bad reasons. And they were John and Charles Wesley, sons of another Anglican clergyman. They were educated at what we would call public schools, and they had a very privileged education at Oxford. Their parents didn't have much money, but they got the scholarships and they had the contacts. But they were a bit disillusioned by their time in Oxford. Even though there they had been part of a network of very serious, the word serious will crop up quite a lot in, in this talk, a network of very serious Christian young men from the university who met regularly to pray, to study the Bible, to reflect on what God was doing in their lives and to encourage each other and to help others. And they're particularly remembered by their, for their visits to prisoners in Oxford Jail. And they've become known, it was a network rather than a, a tight group, but they've been, become known to, in history as the Holy Club. But they were called much ruder things by the non-religious uh, students that surrounded them. And one of those insulting names was to call them the Methodists, because they were thought to be so methodical about their spirituality. Everything was organised. Everything, there was method in everything. And that's the name that stuck. So it's a curious way to get to name for a denomination. John knew himself that he and his brother were going on this voyage to Georgia in America, um, partly or mainly because of their own spiritual needs. They were going to do jobs. Charles was going to be Secretary of Indian Affairs to the governor of Georgia. And John was going to the then little town of Savannah as pastor to the colonists who lived there. And it was intended to be a, as a missionary to what we now these days call Native Americans. And I have a plate at home, a modern plate bought in Georgia of, of John addressing very solemnly this little group of what we used to call Red Indians without much impact. Well, they set off from Gravesend, they got as far as the Isle of Wight, the winds disappeared and they were stuck there for several weeks having an unexpected holiday on the Isle of Wight. But they got going and there were other Christians on board and John led prayers and Holy Communion of a whole group of them. Some of them were Moravian Christians and there's still a Moravian church in this country and throughout the world, a Protestant evangelical group originating in Bohemia, which I think now is the Czech Republic, who had been persecuted for their faith and moved into what we now call Germany. And they were going to live and worship freely in Georgia. And they were a great influence upon the Wesley brothers. They emphasised personal salvation. They focused on the death of Jesus on the cross and its effects for the believer. And they also wanted to revive the customs and faith of the very early church, which John Wesley usually referred to as the primitive church. 
and they had a strong desire to preach the good news of Jesus to all who would listen. But just think, 1700s on a wooden boat crossing the Atlantic, you can guess what happened. In the middle of the Atlantic, there was a great storm which threatened to sink the ship. And that would have meant there'd never been any, any Methodists. So they started praying. They had a service in the midst of the, of the storm and John Wesley wrote about it. In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans, that's the Moravians, calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, was you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. That put him in his place. John was a clergyman. He was a Christian. But he was concerned about the depth of his faith. And this group of Moravians on this ship, which almost sank but didn't, impressed him by their assurance that God would protect them. Well, despite Charles's severe seasickness, they got to Georgia. And to start off, they were very excited, but it all went very badly wrong for both of them. John tried to impose severe discipline on the colonists, and so they hated him. His relationship with a young woman in the colony went badly wrong, and he refused her communion. He turned her away. And so they brought charges against him before a grand jury, mostly concerning his autocratic behaviour. The jury was divided, but it did him a lot of harm, a lot of harm. And all this taught John much about the inadequacies of his faith. He continued to consult with the Moravians who were there. And the Georgia experience, often written off in Methodist history as a disaster, was actually, in retrospect, a great influence on how, what they did in the future. And many of the prototypes of what the Wesleys did in their great missionary days subsequently developed. And one of these was the idea of small core groups of believers called classes. And John inherited out there in Georgia at least one religious society that met regularly to talk about the things of God. And he formed others, as he said, for serious, for, for the most serious communicants. So you judge whether you would have got into one of those classes. Are you a most serious communicant? And some of them met every day. And according to John, they sang, read, sang, prayed, and sang. A lot of singing involved. It would have been the Psalms at that point, not, not hymns. And there was discussion of, of a, a certain level, but they mostly involved singing. And he wrote, a late, <coughs> he wrote later, we agreed first to advise the more serious, notice how the word serious keeps coming up, to advise the more serious among them to form themselves into a sort of little society and to meet once or twice a week in order to reprove, instruct, and exhort 
one another. Second, to select out of these a smaller number for more intimate union with each other. And so these groups in Georgia, as well as the Holy Club in, 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 in Oxford, were going to influence the future when they got back to Britain. Well, they had to get out, really. And Charles returned first to England, and then John arrived back in England on the 1st of February, middle of the winter, lovely voyage back, 1738. So they've been away several years. He continued, when he got back, to be heavily influenced by the Moravians, and indeed went off to Saxony to meet their leader. And both he and his brother Charles struggled. They really struggled to get that assurance of their faith that they so desperately wanted. And it's Charles who had his spiritual breakthrough first on the 21st of May, 1738. That year that was Pentecost or, or Whitsunday. And three days later, the pressure must have been on for John to have his breakthrough. Three days later, John did have the great breakthrough in his spirituality and received the assurance of God's love for him. John had been attending the meetings of a number of religious societies and groups in his spiritual search, but on the 24th of May, 1738, he began by prayer and studying his Bible. He'd be, he got up incredibly early in the morning. He'd be at prayer by about half past four, something like that. There's a something we could follow him in, isn't there? I remember going to, to Korea where they still get up and, and pray at half past four. And it, well, I, I slept in one morning and I was in great disgrace, but um, that's what he did. But later in the day, he, um, he went to St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And the anthem that was sung that day in Evensong was Psalm 74. Out of the deep have I called unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. O let thine ears consider well the voice of my complaint. For there is mercy with thee. Therefore shalt thou be feared. O Israel, trust in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy. And with him is plenteous redemption. Now, it's interesting that one of the things that influenced him in, in his transformation experience that day was a very traditional service of Evensong in a cathedral. It's interesting where people receive the, the voice of God. Then, later in the day, he went to a society, a religious group, in Aldersgate Street in the city of London, flattened during the Second World War, near the Museum of London, if you've ever been there. And at this religious society, someone was reading out loud from Martin Luther's introduction to the letter to the Romans. And again, we might think, that must have been a bit boring. Surely he didn't get anything out of that, but he did. And he later described what happened in some famous words, which are endlessly repeated by Methodists, perhaps a little too often. He said, about a quarter before nine... While he, the man who was reading, was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Phew, he got there. He got to that spiritual place where he wanted to be, a personal assurance that he was forgiven, that his sins were taken away. He trusted in Christ. He was saved 
from the law of sin and death. But he'd learnt a lot from his journey and all the struggles that he'd had. Aldersgate Street was a turning point, a transformational moment both for John Wesley, but for Britain and indeed uh, for the world. From this turning point came the enthusiasm. And that was a religious word in those days, enthusiasm, which created a movement which spread around for the world. On three different occasions yesterday in the centre of Cambridge, I had meetings with American Methodists from Florida, from Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, from, from North Carolina, different times, just a reminder of, of, of a world family of which we're part. And so the two Wesley brothers, they preached up and down the country, they formed local societies, they organised, they cared for the elderly, they cared for educating children, they cared for the poor, they published, they wrote hymns, which is still some of them sing, they wrote books, John Wesley, endless, endless books. But you may now be wondering why I've just talked of events long ago in the 1730s. You may not have, you may have hated history at school and I'm giving you an agonising time talking about dates and dead people from a long time ago. But I hope you will have noticed a theme and I was asked to, to highlight this, this theme. As I said at Oxford, the Wesleys belonged to a mutual support group of young academics like themselves who also went out and cared for the poor. On the ship to Georgia, they became part of a, a religious grouping of serious, uh, including, serious people, including these Moravians. In Georgia, John gathered together serious people to sing and pray together. On his return to London, he went to umpteen different religious societies. London was full of them in those days in his search for assurance and transformation. And the great breakthrough came at a society meeting in Aldous Great Street, which, as I said, might sound rather dull to us. I could also have mentioned his father, who was the rector of Epworth in Lincolnshire. Uh, every Saturday night in his parish had a group gather for prayer and singing and preparing for the following day. So there was this, this stream in his life and religious experience of meeting in small groups for support and prayer and all those other things. And that led him to create a network of classes and societies in his early Methodist organisation. He was a much better organiser, actually, than he was a preacher. George Whitfield was the much better preacher, but didn't organise anything. So once he'd given his great sermon and moved on, that was, that was it. John Wesley stayed and set up an organisation and a society and so on. And curiously, and this is what happens in the church, the practical incident that started the classes in the early Methodist uh, days was it was a way of collecting money always a significant part of being a church member and in 1742 captain foy a member of the bristol methodist society suggested that members should be grouped together in classes and one penny a week collected from each member to pay for the new chapel in the city still standing and still called new it's called the new room still and those classes quickly developed as a method for collecting money, house to house, first of all, into an opportunity for the class leader in his or her class, and then after in a weekly meeting, for mutual accountable conversation, support and fellowship. And these classes, these class meetings, became the vital centre of early, of early Methodism. 
In the class, personal and spiritual life could be discussed, problems shared, sin and temptation made plain to a sympathetic, I'm reading from what somebody's written, to a sympathetic and understanding group and admonition or congratulation offered by the class leader. This took place during the course of a meeting that prayed, sang and shared open testimony. Well, these class meetings flourished for quite a long time, but but fell into decline a long time ago now. At my church in the centre of Cambridge, we have quite a lot of house groups. We have Advent and Lent groups. We have study groups. But I don't think they're the same as Methodist class meetings in their early days. And perhaps we Christian people are not always, don't always feel comfortable about sharing our deepest thoughts, our failures, our doubts, our triumphs, the good times and the bad. Perhaps we're not always comfortable about trying to understand how God has been working in our lives. Perhaps we're very unwilling to talk about our sins in public. Though in a secular society there's a great demand for counselling and therapy and other ways of support. In the church some people have spiritual direction or supervision or other things like that. But all these things tend to be individual things or with somebody guiding you. Class meetings were a mutual group of support. When I visited South Korea some years ago, I went as a guest of a Methodist church with 5,000 members, one of the smaller ones, and I'm not joking. Uh, We began to get um, confused by all the numbers of 10,000 members and 20,000 members, 60,000 members. I had to tell them at that time that one of my churches I was going to had 13 members. They didn't quite understand that. But that church was built as a pyramid. Everybody belonged to a weekly class meeting with a class leader who reported upwards and finally at the top. Rather hierarchical. Uh, There were the ordained ministers. And then just yesterday I heard about the Inspire movement in this country who led a training day for a church not very far from here as an introduction to the Inspire vision for mission-shaped discipleship. It's very interesting to read their literature. They, their, you may know of it. Their vision includes spiritual conversation, uh, conversation in small groups asking, how is it with your soul? Do we ask that when we meet in a group? How is it with your soul? Or what is God doing in your life? And they speak about uh, mutual accountability, quote, sharing our experience as everyday disciples, seeking to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. So the Wesleyan ideal of, uh, of, of meeting in groups, small groups, is still alive in some of the most modern forms of being church. I do believe in looking at the early church, what John Wesley called the primitive church. I do believe in looking to the beginnings of my own tradition, the Methodist roots, it's my adopted tradition, Uh, for roots and for inspiration and for other people's traditions. I love the Orthodox tradition. I worked, as I said, with Anglicans. I love the Church of England's uh, tradition and and, and so on. All great revivals or movements for change in Christian history have looked to the past for the inspiration to start them. The Protestant Reformation, which we'll be celebrating maybe in the next year, the 18th century evangelical revival of which the Wesleys were part of, the Anglo-Catholic revival, very different from us of the 19th century, the ecumenical liturgical movements of the 20th century, all thought they were looking back to the past to see how they did it. 
Well, John Wesley lived until 1791, preaching to the very end, and you'll be relieved that I've stopped his story at 1738. And the question I want to leave with you is, can the past challenge us to do things in the present? Can it feed us? Can it renew us in the present? It's odd to think of the past renewing us. But I think, well, the Bible is technically in the past, isn't it? It renews us. Can we get our inspiration from some of these things in the past? And I haven't preached, I normally preach on the scriptures, but I, apart from referring to one verse, I haven't done so today. Forgive me for that. But it's a very important verse at the end of quite an interesting story in, in the gospel of how people to relate to each other. Where two or three are gathered together, then Jesus is there. When two or three or four or five or six or seven or eight are gathered together in prayer, singing, Jesus is there. Amen.